Well, I'm glad to see you here this morning, the, literally the, the frozen chosen here. I, I had a dream Friday night, you know, with this bad weather, I, I dreamed that uh, very few of you came this morning, and, and then I dreamed that the ones that did come decided to go hang out together in the gym, and so I literally gave a sermon to an empty room. So I've been a little nervous uh, this morning, so I'm, I'm glad, to, glad to see you here. Well, please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 67 through 80. Last week we began looking at this passage, uh, Zechariah's prophecy concerning his son, John the Baptist, following the birth of, of John the Baptist. And uh, as you turn there, let me invite you to come out to this evening to Camp Good News. We're going to be looking at the, the life of Abraham in a little more detail. And so some of the things that we talk about this morning concerning Abraham and the covenant that God makes with him, we'll be looking at in, in more detail this evening, so I invite you to, to come out and participate in that. And then we also are going to have the incredible opportunity to spend some time with uh, Pat and Rachel Emmert. Uh, Pat and Rachel are uh, preparing to do an amazing ministry in the Middle East, and it is a, a great privilege of our church, as, as it is with all of our missionaries, but it's a great privilege of our church to be able to, to support this, uh, this amazing ministry that they're going to be involved in. And so I, I strongly encourage you to come out and listen to, to, to uh, the things that they're going to be involved in this evening. Well, uh, please turn with me, or you've already turned with me, please stand with me in uh, Luke chapter 1, as we read verses 67 through 80 together. Zechariah's prophecy. Verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ministry that you've given each of us of proclaiming your kingdom and being a, participating in your kingdom, of those of us who've placed our faith in your promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would be with us this morning as we look at these words of Zechariah, your words, and we pray that you would open our hearts to them. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we began looking at Zechariah's prophecy, and as we looked at Zechariah's prophecy, we saw that he was referring, he alludes to some, some covenants that God made with his people in the Old Testament. We saw that there were three covenants that he alludes to, and these covenants that God made with his people give us an insight into what the kingdom of God is like. 
And as we talked about this kingdom of God, we discussed how there's been a tension that God's people have always experienced. A tension between being a citizen of God's kingdom and yet simultaneously being a part of a worldly political kingdom as well. That tension between being a part of whatever kingdom we find ourselves in right now in the world and simultaneously being a citizen of God's kingdom. For example, Christians in the second century who were in Rome were subjects of the Roman government and yet simultaneously were citizens of God's kingdom as well. And Christians in early Rome often found that that tension to be very severe. Romans viewed Christians with great suspicion, remember? Rome saw Christians' refusal to engage in in Caesar worship as as treason. Christians failed to participate in many of the activities of the day. They didn't go as spectators to the gladiator games. Rome viewed Christians as as people who attacked the social order. Christians uh, treated slaves with with dignity. They, They treated women with respect. Christians would take in infants who had been abandoned by their fathers, thereby challenging the right of a father to to discard his unwanted child. Christians were viewed with suspicion by Rome and at times encountered persecution from the state. Christians struggled with how to respond to the persecution they endured from Rome. Some were tempted to to oppose Rome with with very violent words and sometimes violent actions. Uh, Some Christians just said, well, 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 fine, kind of hands off from our culture. Our our culture can do whatever it wants to do. We're going to to maintain our our holiness apart from our culture. Uh, Some Christians, such as Tertullian, an early Christian apologist or defender of the faith, said, okay, look, we, we understand that we are subject to Rome. God has called us to be submissive to Rome, but at the same time, we're going to engage our culture. And so Tertullian wrote defenses for Christianity that were designed to to help the the Roman government understand who Christians were and and to influence the government for righteousness. He strikes a a nice balance between uh, violent opposition that's not submission that God calls us to and conscientious objecting, say, well, I'm not going to influence my government whatsoever. So Tertullian would write defenses of the faith. He would say, why are you persecuting Christians simply for being Christians. Why not investigate the charges? He says that alone is demanded for that the public hate requires. The confession of the name of Christ is the crime. There's no investigation of the charges. And so Tertullian was highly, highly influential in his day. Those of us today living in the United States of America are also going to encounter this tension, this tension between being loyal subjects and citizens of the United States of America, and simultaneously citizens of God's kingdom. For example, some of you who are our students are sometimes going to be asked by your teachers to, to write on topics and defend positions that are not in keeping with what God's word says you're to, to defend and, and think about. Those of you who are teachers are sometimes going to be required by by the state to teach things that may not be in accordance with what God's kingdom teaches us. Those of you who are in the workplace are going to sometimes be required by your employers to to take positions that are contrary to, to kingdom principles. 
those of us in the ministry may face a day when even when we communicate things with, with Christ's love, we're accused of, of hate speech. There are going to be times that each of us finds this, this tension between what God's kingdom demands of us and what being loyal citizens of God's kingdom requires and what our culture, what our government asks of us as well. And as we looked at last week, the way that we should view our responsibility to our current kingdom is not as conscientious objectors saying, well, well, fine, let our government do whatever it wants, let our, our society do whatever it wants, we're out of here. Nor should we uh, approach our culture as, as conquerors saying, well, well, fine, we're Christians and we're going to set up God's kingdom right now. Uh, no, what we do is we approach our current worldly kingdom as ambassadors from God's kingdom. We begin looking at Zechariah's prophecy, and we, we talked a little bit about the idea of a covenant. Remember that? A covenant is an agreement usually between two groups of people. And there's different types of covenants we see in Scripture. Uh, some covenants are, are bilateral covenants. That is, uh, one party has an obligation and the other party has an ab- obligation, and the covenant clearly defines what those obligations are, and then it spells out what the penalty for violating that covenant is. Some covenants are unilateral. That is, one party says, look, I'm entering into this covenant with you, and here's what the obligations upon me are. And these unilateral covenants in Scripture are often entered into by God with his people. And he says, on the basis of me being God, here is how I am going to deal with you. And there are three covenants where God does this that kind of stand together in Scripture oftentimes. And they're the three covenants We began looking at last week and are going to continue looking at this week. The first covenant that we looked at last week was the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. And as we looked at the Davidic covenant and Zechariah's words here under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we saw that the Davidic covenant tells us that God's kingdom is a political kingdom. The Davidic covenant reveals to us that God's kingdom is a political kingdom. And so Zechariah has some real expectations about the political deliverance that God's kingdom is going to provide. He refers here, verse 68, to God's visitation and redemption. He talks about the horn of salvation that's been delivered for us in the house of his servant David. He talks about the the prophecies from the, the mouths of the holy prophets of old. And he talks about salvation from our enemies. He envisions here a real establishment of a political kingdom in which God's righteous judgments are realized. The Davidic covenant and Zechariah's understanding under the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit reveals to us that God's kingdom is a real political kingdom. Now let's look at the second covenant here, the Abrahamic covenant. We see this covenant described referred to by Zechariah in verses 72 through 75. Look there with me, please. Verse 72, Zechariah says this, This was to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness 
and righteousness before him all our days. And so Zechariah is now going from the Davidic covenant and talking about the Abrahamic covenant. And as he talks about the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, what we learn is this. God's kingdom is not only a political kingdom. God's kingdom is also a spiritual kingdom. Look again at verse 72. He says, the reason that God is saving us from our enemies, verse 71, is to show the mercy promised to our fathers. There's that word mercy again. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Now what's that oath? Keep your fingers there in Luke chapter 1 and turn back with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at a couple passages in Genesis that help us understand this promise that God made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, as you get to Genesis chapter 12, you've just completed Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11. And in those chapters, God is, is, is telling us all the descendants of, of Noah and kind of all the nations and things like that. And then he draws our attention to one man, to this man, Abram. Verse 1 says this of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice there are a couple components to this promise that God makes to Abram. Look, first of all, he says, go to this land, and I'm going to, to give you this land that I'll show you. That's the first part of the promise. Another part of the promise is that he's going to make him a great nation. He says, uh, go there, and I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have a lot of descendants, and, and you are going to be this, this amazing nation. And then the third aspect is this blessing. I'm going to bless you and make your name great so you'll be a blessing. So here's, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And through this, this nation that you're going to be, you're going to be blessed. Those who bless you will also be blessed. Those who curse you will be under the curse of God. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. Now turn over to a couple other chapters, to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, some, some time has gone by. And Abram is still childless. And God says this to Abram, verse 1, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram's a little confused. Verse 2 says, O Lord God, what will you give me? What's this great reward? I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And then he kind of thinks about it in verse 3. He says, oh, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So I see, God, you've promised me this, that I'd be this great nation. I guess what you meant is that someone that was born in my house is going to become this great nation. Listen to what God says. God says this, verse 4, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God takes Abram outside and says, look, you see all these stars? You see how it's impossible to, to differentiate between them and, and begin to, to count them? Just as it's impossible for you to number the stars, it's going to be impossible for you to, to number your offspring. 
I'm, what I promised you before, I meant literally, and it's going to be fulfilled. And how does Abram respond to that rather remarkable word from the Lord? Look at verse 6. This is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram didn't do anything. There was no works involved in Abram's part here. He simply believed what God said. And God took that belief of Abram and he counted it to him as, as, as righteousness. That word belief is kind of interesting. Sometimes around Christmas, you may hear some different definitions of faith and belief. You know, belief is believing in something even when all evidence is to the contrary. Or belief is, is something, something magical that, that we do when there's, there's nothing really there to believe in. Yesterday, I believed that the Dallas Cowboys were going to, to win the playoff game. And I was right. But I had no real objective evidence. In fact, my belief was very faltering. In the first quarter, as, as things kind of went bad there for a few minutes in, in frustration, I said, well, there, there it goes again and turned off the TV. Uh, my belief wasn't a, a belief based on, upon anything real, okay? Any team can, can win or lose on any given Saturday or Sunday. That, that's not the type of belief that Abram has here. What, what Abram's belief here is this. Okay, okay, I have some evidence to the contrary of what God's saying. I've existed quite some time without children. I'm an old guy. It would be easy for me to believe that what God said what happened isn't going to happen. But then, on the other hand, he has something more certain. He has God's infallible word. And so what Abram chooses to do is, okay, based upon the, the types of evidence I have here, I'm going to trust God and believe in his sure word because it is more certain that what God says will take place than what my experiences teach me will usually take place. That's belief. Trusting that what God has said he will do, he will do. Not because we lack evidence, because, because the evidence of God's trustworthiness outweighs anything else in our lives. And so Abram listens to God, believes God, and God counts that belief as righteousness. And listen to this. Every single person who has ever entered God's kingdom, ever, has entered God's kingdom not on the basis of their works. A person enters God's kingdom by faith alone. Look on a little more in the chapter 15 here. God enters into a formal covenant with Abram. And he enters into this formal covenant, this idea of it being God alone who establishes the covenant is reiterated. In the ancient Near East, is two parties entered into a covenant with one another, what would happen sometimes is they would take these animals and they would, they would cut them in two. And they'd take the carcasses of these animals and, and split them. And the people who are entering into the covenant together would, would make the agreement, and then they would, they would walk through the, the, the different halves of these animal carcasses. And essentially what it's saying is, hey, you see this dead animal of a carcass? That's what's going to happen to you, buddy, if you violate our covenant. Come to verse 17. 
Abram and God, Abram has, has divided these, these animals. Verse 17 says this of Genesis 15. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. In other words, verse, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Earlier in verse 12, uh, we see that Abram had been asleep this time too. So what happens? Abram does not walk through the pieces. God himself walks, passes through the pieces. This is a covenant that God enters into unilaterally. God says, Abram, this is how I am going to deal with you. We'll talk more about this this evening at Camp Good News in our evening service, but turn over to one passage in the New Testament, Romans chapter 4. Listen to what Paul says about this covenant that God makes with Abram and Abram's response to God's word here in Genesis 15. Romans chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, you know, maybe you're tempted to say, well, Abraham didn't enter into a relationship with God through faith. He worked for it. Paul says this in response to that. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. Listen to what else Zacharias says here as he's talking about Abraham. He says, verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, that's which we've just been talking about, this covenant, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. As we looked at the Davidic kingdom last week, we saw, look, this is a real political kingdom, absolutely. God has a desire for righteousness. God has a desire for justice. And there's going to be a, a real kingdom that's established someday with Christ as its king that's going to, to exercise perfect righteousness and justice. But the purpose of that kingdom, we see here as he talks about the Abrahamic covenant, it's so that as we're delivered from the hand of our enemies, we can engage in worship of God, that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You do not enter the kingdom of God, even though it's a political kingdom, you do not enter the kingdom of God through any other means but faith in his promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God, yes, is a kingdom that is righteous and just, but it's a kingdom whose end is the worship of God. Many evangelicals today are looking at Jesus' words concerning the kingdom and thinking that the kingdom of God is all about this present world. The evangelical church has become very 
very enamored with, with social issues. And I think it's good to, to fight for equality. It's, it's great, great to fight poverty. But let me read you a couple quotes from, from different members of the evangelical church. One man, Brian McLaren, says this. See if you can spot what's wrong here. Jesus' message is not actually about escaping this troubled world for heaven's blissful shores, as is popularly assumed, but instead it is about God's will being done on this troubled earth as it is in heaven. Now, he's absolutely right that God's will should be done here on earth as it is in heaven, but it is absolutely also about a coming future kingdom where we do escape the, this, this troubled world and God establishes a new world. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Here's another quote. A man named Rob Bell, he says this. He's talking about evangelicals. He says, I, I embrace the term evangelical. That is, I, I call myself evangelical. If by that we mean a belief, here's how he defines evangelical, a belief that we can actually work together for change in the world, caring for the environment, extending to the poor generosity and kindness and a hopeful outlook. That's the beautiful sort of thing. Look, absolutely, absolutely we should, we should care for the environment and, and care for the poor, but, but don't be confused. God's kingdom is not just a kingdom about caring for the poor. God's kingdom isn't just about justice for justice's sake. God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. The object of God's kingdom is, is worship of him. And so as we, we engage in a, a real future, real political kingdom, we also are concerned with the spiritual aspect of this kingdom. Let's look last, at the last covenant here, the new covenant. As we look at the new covenant, we see that God's kingdom is also a proclaimed kingdom. God's kingdom is also a proclaimed kingdom. Zechariah now, here in verse 76, begins talking about his son, John the Baptist. And he says, look, child, John, oh, here, you're going to be called the prophet of the Most High. You're going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways, uh, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the, the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, that is the Messiah, to give light to those who sit in darkness, listen to this, light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's talking about how this real kingdom with this Davidic king and this political kingdom that's also spiritual is going to offer people deliverance from their sins. There's going to be a, this new internalization of the relationship with God. Iniquity is going to be done away with. The, the sunlight is going to, to shine to those who are in darkness. He's talking about this new covenant that God had promised. I'm taking one more passage here in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah 31, beginning in Verse 31, the prophet Jeremiah describes this new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking there about the covenant with Moses. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There were bilateral obligations there. Verse 33 but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and, they will, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer 
Shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then he goes on to talk about how this, this covenant will last forever. Zechariah understands that new covenant. And so as he talks about the covenant made with David and as he talks about the covenant made with Abraham, he says, and you, John, you've got an amazing ministry. You're proclaiming that this promised kingdom has come. And the charge that Zechariah gives John the Baptist here to proclaim the arrival of this Davidic king is a charge that's repeated to those of us who are believers throughout the rest of Scripture. This kingdom of God, this kingdom of God that's concerned with righteousness and justice, this kingdom of God that's a kingdom that's only entered into through faith in Jesus Christ is a kingdom that is also a proclaimed kingdom, and it's the job of every single one of us who would name the name of Jesus Christ to proclaim this coming kingdom of Christ. We are ambassadors of that kingdom. And just as John was to prepare the way for the coming of the king, each of us are are heralds of the king that announce the king is returning and his kingdom will be established. It will be a kingdom that is concerned with righteousness and justice and it's a kingdom you want to be a part of and it's a kingdom you can only be a part of by placing your faith in the king. Let me give you four thoughts here. Four thoughts of application that I hope will help you begin to resolve this tension between being a part of this current worldly kingdom and Christ's coming kingdom that's already begun in some senses as well. Here's the first thought. First thought I have uh, may help us resolve this tension. God's kingdom is not the current worldly system we find ourselves a part of And so we must be careful not to confuse the two. God's God's kingdom is not the current worldly system we find ourselves a part of, and so we have to be very careful not to confuse the two. And I I think it's hard for us sometimes as as Christians living in the United States of America not to believe that that somehow it's not our our job to establish God's kingdom right now or or that God wants to establish his kingdom through the United States of America. That's not God's plan. I think I've already said enough that's recorded digitally that could be brought up against me. I don't think that uh, high political office is ever in my future. I think there'll be a a lot to use against me. Let me give some more ammunition here. And uh, I may run for the exit quickly here. You know, God is not that concerned with democracy. Democracy is not God's ultimate plan. I'm a monarchist. (laughs) Let me tell you a little about the origins of democracy. And and don't get me wrong, I agree with Winston Churchill. Democracy is the worst form of government in the world, except for all the other kinds. But let me tell you about the origin of democracy. During the Enlightenment, the end of the the, uh, 17th century, 18th century, there became this this idea that reality was, was, there were kind of two different spheres of reality. And the upper story of reality existed of of things like religion. And the lower story of reality was was reason. And the, 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 the political philosophers during the Enlightenment wanted to establish 
a form of government based not upon religion, but upon reason. Before, it had been assumed that God was the one who established governments. And now, philosophers like John Locke believe, look, it's not, it's not God who establishes a government, but we as individuals, and in the Enlightenment you see a lot of the autonomy of the individual, we as individuals establish a government. We enter into what he called a social contract. A government receives its, its, its validity from the just consent of the governed. And I would suggest to you that our founding fathers were every bit as influenced by John Locke as they were Scripture. Now, I would also say this. Democracy, in our, the republic form of democracy, has worked amazingly well in our country, but here's why I believe this worked so well. Because the people that were involved in making the decisions were people who had a, a Judeo-Christian worldview, who believed in making laws that were in accordance with what God's word said should be done. And I believe that God blesses those who, who exercise a government in the form that, that God says a government should be exercised in. But democracy itself is not some silver bullet that God's going to use to establish his kingdom. That's why I believe that democracy has worked very poorly in the Middle East. You get a bunch of people and say, we know you hate the United States, please vote on a leader. And lo and behold, they elect a leader that hates the United States. <laughs> it's why I believe that democracy is, is struggling so much in our country. There's no moral basis upon which we make our laws and decisions. The fundamental assumption of our, our current political environment is the autonomy of the individual. Autonomy of the individual. It was the basis of our government, and it continues to, whether it be conservative or liberal or libertarian or, or green or Pinocchio, whatever party you're a part of, in our current political system, the, the individual is viewed as supreme. That's why marriage is viewed as a contract that people should be able to get out of at will. It's a, one of the primary arguments used to justify the horrendousness of abortion. No one should interfere with the right of an individual. It affects our views concerning sexuality, justice, economics, tax policy. All these things, all these things are affected by our current worldly system. And I love, to, I, I love our country. I, I'm, I'm grateful that I live in a, a republic form of, of government, a democracy. But I understand this. <laughs> it's, not, it's not my ultimate kingdom. What's the answer? Well, as I view this country, as I view it, the political system, I say this, look, I'm, I'm promoting a different form of government. <laughs> I'm promoting a monarchy. And I encourage every person in America to submit to my king as they live in this political system. That's the first thought I have as I think about this tension. God's kingdom is not the current worldly system we find ourselves a part of, and so we, we have to be careful not to confuse the two. My second thought is this. God's kingdom has begun in some senses, and so we work as Christians to establish kingdom principles no matter what government we find ourselves in submission to. Let me just look at, there's a couple passages I, I had here. Let me just look at one. First Peter, you don't have to turn there if it will take you a while. Uh, First Peter chapter 3, as Peter concludes, taking me a while, he, he says this. He concludes that chapter 3. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
And so there's a sense in which Jesus Christ has, has already begun to, to reign as king. God has already caused the powers to be in subjection to him, and yet Christ hasn't fully realized his reign yet. I liken it somewhat to a presidential election, and all analogies fall short here, but it's kind of like this. You know, in November, the president's elected, but then he becomes the president-elect. That's kind of like, I view that a little bit as like the Old Testament time period. There's an announcing that, that Jesus Christ is going to reign as king. And then there's an inauguration where the king, where the, the, king, the president receives all, the, all the, the power inherent in the position. But then there's a, a time later where he really begins to, to be the president and establish his cabinet and begin to enact law and, or administer uh, the, the executive function over law. Christ was announced as king in the Old Testament. At the cross and after his resurrection, those things in his ascension he was placed as king, and yet he hasn't begun his rule as king in, in full yet. And he won't until the establishment of, of his kingdom. But I believe that because he's begun to, to rule as, as king, our obligation is to do the things that our king requires us to do. And so we need to work towards enacting laws that are in keeping with what the purpose God says of government is. You and I, as, as Christians, need to enact laws that promote justice, we need to enact laws that restrain evil, that protect the innocent. And I believe that there are two things that are really working against us in our culture. One thing is that there's increasing hostility to allowing people of faith to express that faith and have any influence whatsoever in the public sphere. So, for example, there's a foundation, uh, a foundation called Freedom from Religious Foundation. And I was on their website this past week, and there's a section of frequently asked questions, and this was one of the questions. Very, listen to this. Very interesting. A church is meeting in a public school. What can I do about it? Isn't that a phenomenal question to be asked in the United States of America? There's a, a group of people who are religious that are meeting in a public place. What can I do to stop it? Their answer was, surprising, well, legally not much yet. <laughs> and then they suggested ways to harass. There's this idea that, if, that, if you're, that the types of laws you want to enact are, are based in any way on values that they call religious values, they shouldn't influence law. That's an amazing development in our country. And we as Christians must unashamedly say, yes, my faith does influence the type of laws that I believe should be in our, our country. But that's one thing working against us is there's increasing, increasing hostility to that. The other thing that I believe is, is working against us is that our government has entered a, our society in sub, some segments has, has turned a very interesting corner. No longer is our, has our government said, okay, we're not going to restrain some forms of evil any longer. They passed a corner where no longer are they just saying that. Now they're saying we're actually going to promote evil. We're going to actively promote evil acts, immorality. It's a very interesting, very sad development in our culture. We shouldn't be surprised at it. We shouldn't be scared of it. But as believers, as ambassadors of God's kingdom, we should stand against it. I was reading an article 
several things about this, this promotion of evil in our culture. As you read an article, New York City has just spent tens of thousands of tax dollar monies to develop pamphlets for, for people who use heroin on how to do so safely. Recently, there was a trans, this is not the term that I believe we use as Christians, but the term that our culture uses, transgender. There was a transgender appointment to the Obama administration. It was touted as this expression of tolerance. A Planned Parenthood is an organization that is, that is proven to be a racist organization and a, an organization that, that promotes the, uh, the, the killing of children. And yet they're a, an organization that receives millions of dollars of, of federal funding. I could go on and on with examples of how the, the uh, just a very anti-God mentality is being promoted by the government that we serve. So God's kingdom, God's kingdom has begun and even though we are in a culture that, that exists like that, it is still our job to work to establish kingdom principles. And so unashamedly say, look, our job is not to establish God's kingdom now. That's not going to take place. You don't need me to freak out about that people who are anti-religious. But look, we are going to do this unashamedly. We're going to promote laws that protect the innocent. We're going to promote laws that restrain evil. And we're going to promote laws that promote justice. That's what we do is, and, and allow us, of course, most importantly, to worship God. Those are the type of laws, society we, we fight for. Third principle, third thought of application here is this. First one was God's kingdom is not this current worldly system. Second thought, God's kingdom has begun and so we work to establish kingdom principles. Third thought is this. God has placed us in this world and we have real obligations to our current worldly kingdom. God has given us real obligations to the, the the kingdoms that we're in submission to. We don't have time to turn there, but you can write down Romans 13, 1 through 7 as just an example of that. You and I have an obligation to love the people who hate us. We have an obligation to, to love those, all those who are in authority over us. We have an obligation to pray for them. We have an obligation to have a right heart attitude toward them as, as we submit to them, even when they attack us. And we have the obligation to do things like pay our taxes and support even a government that engages and things that are contrary to God's will for it. Fourth thought of application. God calls us to announce and anticipate his kingdom. God calls us to announce and anticipate his kingdom. I told you that I believe that God's kingdom, based upon the Davidic covenant and Zechariah's understanding of it, that God's kingdom is a real political kingdom that it's a spiritual kingdom that can only be entered into through faith, whose object is the worship of God. And I've told you that I believe that our calling now is to proclaim that coming kingdom. I believe that this kingdom, though it's begun in some senses, Christ is, I believe, truly the king, although he hasn't fully established his reign yet, this kingdom is primarily future. There is coming a day when God is going to establish this kingdom, it has not been established yet. I mentioned last week that there are two types of ways to kind of view the Old Testament and these covenants that were made. And some people say, well, all of these covenants that God made with his people in the past are, are now being realized by the church. And I don't believe that that's true. I believe that we as a church are participating in the benefits of Christ's promised kingdom. But remember when we were at Jeremiah 31, who was that covenant made with? It was made with the, the people of of Israel and Judah. God's promise to Abraham was made to Abraham and, and his descendants. 
You can write down this passage, Romans, this chapter, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, I believe, tells us of a future time when, when God is going to deal very clearly with, with ethnic Israel. And so while I believe there's some continuity between these covenants and we're experiencing the blessing and, and we're, we're part of God's kingdom now, there's coming a future day when God's kingdom is going to be realized in full. And I believe that this is described in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 describes the millennial kingdom. Satan is bound. He's, verse 3 of Revelation 20, he's thrown into a pit. It's shut up, sealed over, so he might not deceive, listen to this, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And so there's coming a time where this Satan is going to be bound in this thousand-year period. There's going to be this time where these people are, where, where, where Christ rules. Verse uh, 4 of this chapter says uh, that Christ rules and these, these saints reign with Christ for a thousand years. And in that time period, I believe that this kingdom that is a political kingdom, this kingdom that's a spiritual kingdom that's entered into through faith, and this kingdom that has been a proclaimed kingdom comes to fruition. Let me close with, with this thought here. Our job is to announce that kingdom Our job is to be loyal citizens of whatever kingdom, whatever culture we find ourselves in by God's sovereign hand. But then our obligation is to announce that there's another kingdom that's coming. There's a man named Pliny the Younger. He was a Roman senator and then became a governor of a province. And he was writing at the beginning of the second century, 111 AD. He wrote to the emperor. And he said, look, emperor, I got this problem There's these Christians, and I'm not quite sure what their crime is. I know it's illegal to be a Christian, but, like, do I I punish them just for being a Christian or when they start doing Christian-like things? I don't know what to do with them. He says this. He says, here's how I handled it so far. Tell me if I'm right. Any person who denied, listen to this, all who denied, he's, he's writing to the emperor, Pliny's writing to the emperor, this, this Roman government, governor, trying to deal with these Christians. All who deny that they were or had been Christians I considered should be discharged because they called upon the gods at my dictation and they did reverence with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought forward for this purpose together with the statues of the deities and especially because they cursed Christ, a thing which it is said genuine Christians cannot be induced to do. The emperor responds, any so-called Christian who recants should be forgiven, and they prove it by worshiping our gods. Whose kingdom are you part of? Whose kingdom are you ultimately a part of? Plenty the Younger, not a Christian, understood one essential thing about a Christian. A genuine Christian, he said, it can't be induced to worship our gods. And so he brought forth the, the incense and the image of the emperor to cause Christians to, so-called Christians to worship before it. The emperor responds, that's right. That's right. A person proves they're not a Christian by worshiping our gods. 
May God give us the grace as we think about his coming kingdom to say, I love the people in my culture. I love my country. But I'm a citizen of a better country. My kingdom is a coming kingdom. And my obligation now is to promote righteousness in this kingdom by calling people to submit to a coming king. That's what John the Baptist's job was. That's what our job is as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, and we thank you for this amazing coming kingdom. And and Father, it is King Jesus whom we worship. It's King Jesus who our hearts are in submission to this morning, and we pray that you would give us the grace not to worship the gods of our culture, but to worship the one true God, his one true king, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.